Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. found it very comforting to hear bedtime stories. I've tried a few podcasts and even some apps that I had to pay for, and this one is my favorite. I listen to it so much that now I have a sort of Pavlovian response where the intro music makes me release tension and get ready to fall asleep. And thank you to whoever wrote that review. It really made us smile. And we are so happy to help you fall asleep. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by a hot bath. Tonight, we'll read an excerpt from Great Expectations that features the iconic character, Miss Havisham. A wealthy spinster, once jilted at the altar, who insists on wearing her wedding dress for the rest of her life, she is one of Dickens' most gothic characters. Miss Havisham lives in a ruined mansion with her adopted daughter, Estella. Dickens describes her as looking like the witch of the place. Although she has often been portrayed in film versions as elderly, Dickens' own notes indicate that she is not quite 40 years old at the start of the novel, and that her reclusive lifestyle without sunlight aged her. This book is narrated by Pip, a young orphan living with his adult sister and her husband Joe. The story will open up on the day Pip is taken by his uncle Pumblechook to the home of Miss Havisham to play with her daughter, Estella. 
relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. Mr. Pumblechook and I breakfasted at eight o'clock in the parlor behind the shop while the shopman took his mug of tea and hunch of bread on a sack of peas in the front premises. I considered Mr. Pumblechook wretched company. Besides being possessed by my sister's idea that a punishing character ought to be imparted to my diet, besides giving me as much crumb as possible in combination with as little butter and putting such a quantity of warm water into my milk that it would have been more candid to have left the milk out altogether. His conversation consisted of nothing but arithmetic. On my politely bidding him good morning, he said pompously, Seven times nine, boy. And how should I be able to answer, dodged in that way, in a strange place, on an empty stomach? I was hungry, but before I had swallowed a morsel, he began a running sum that lasted all through the breakfast. Seven? And four? And eight? And six? And two? And ten? And so on. And after each figure was disposed of, it was as much as I could do to get a bite or a sup before the next came, while he sat at his ease, guessing nothing, and eating bacon and hot roll, if I may be allowed the expression, a gorging and gormandizing manner. For such reasons, I was very glad when ten o'clock came and we started for Miss Havisham's. Though I was not at all at my ease regarding the manner in which I should equip myself under that lady's roof. Within a quarter of an hour, we came to Miss Havisham's house, which was of old brick and dismal and had a great many iron bars to it. Some of the windows had been walled up. Of those that remained, all the lower were rustily barred. There was a courtyard in front, and that was barred, so we had to wait. After ringing the bell, until someone could come to open it, While we waited at the gate, I peeped in. Even then, Mr. Pumblechook said, And fourteen? But I pretended not to hear him, and saw that at the side of the house there was a large brewery. No brewing was going on in it, and none seemed to have gone on for a long, long time. A window was raised, 
and a clear voice demanded, What name? To which my conductor replied, Pumblechook. The voice returned, Quite right. And the window was shut again. And a young lady came across the courtyard with keys in her hand. This, said Mr. Pumblechook, is Pip. This is Pip, is it? returned the young lady, who was very pretty and seemed very proud. Come in, Pip. Mr. Pumblechook was coming in also when she stopped him with the gate. Oh, she said. Did you wish to see Miss Havisham? If Miss Havisham wished to see me, returned Mr. Pumblechook, discomfited. Ah, said the girl. But you see, she don't. She said it so finally, and in a such undiscussable way that Mr. Pumblechook, though in a condition of ruffled dignity, could not protest. But he eyed me severely, as if I had done anything to him, and departed with the words reproachfully delivered. Boy, let your behavior here be a credit unto them which brought you up by hand. I was not free from apprehension that he would come back to propound through the gate and sixteen, but he didn't. My young conductress locked the gate and we went across the courtyard. It was paved and clean, but grass was growing in every crevice. The brewery buildings had a little lane of communication with it, and the wooden gates of that lane stood open, and all the brewery beyond stood open, away to the high enclosing wall, and all was empty and disused. The cold wind seemed to blow colder there than outside the gate and it made a shrill noise in howling in and out at the open sides of the brewery, like the noise of wind in the rigging of a ship at sea. She saw me looking at it, and she said, You could drink without hurt all the strong beer that's brewed there now, boy. I should think I could, miss, said I in a shy way. Better not try to brew beer there now, or it would turn out sour, boy. Don't you think so? It looks like it, miss. Not that anybody means to try, she added, for that's all done with, and the place will stand as idle as it is till it falls. As to strong beer, There's enough of it in the cellars already to drown the manor house. Is that the name of this house, miss? One of its names, boy, 
It has more than one miss. One more. Its other name was Satis, which is Greek, or Latin, or Hebrew, or all three, or all one to me for enough. Enough house, said I. That's a curious name, miss. Yes, she replied. But it meant more than it said. It meant, when it was given, that whoever had this house could want nothing else. They must have been easily satisfied in those days. But don't loiter, boy. Though she called me boy so often, and with a carelessness that was far from complimentary, she was of about my own age. She seemed much older than I, of course, being a girl, and beautiful, and self-possessed, and she was as scornful of me as if she had been one and twenty, and a queen. We went into the house by a side door. The great front entrance had two chains across it outside, and the first thing I noticed was that the passages were all dark, and that she had left a candle burning there. She took it up, and we went through more passages, and up a staircase, and still it was all dark, and only the candle lighted us. At last we came to the door of her room, and she said, Go in. I answered, more in shyness than politeness. After you, miss. To this she returned, Don't be ridiculous, boy. I am not going in. And scornfully walked away. And what was worse, took the candle with her. This was very uncomfortable, and I was half afraid. However, the only thing to be done being to knock at the door. I knocked, and was told from within to enter. I entered, therefore, and found myself in a pretty large room, well lighted with wax candles. No glimpse of daylight was to be seen in it. It was a dressing room, as I supposed from the furniture, though much of it was of forms and uses then quite unknown to me. But prominent in it was a draped table with a gilded looking glass, and that I made out at first sight to be a fine lady's dressing table. Whether I should have made out this object so soon if there had been no fine lady sitting at it, I cannot say. In an armchair, with an elbow resting on the table, and her head leaning on that hand, sat the strangest lady I have ever seen, or shall ever see. She was dressed in rich materials, satins and lace and silks, all of white. Her shoes were white, 
and she had a long white veil dependent from her hair and she had bridal flowers in her hair but her hair was white some bright jewels sparkled on her neck and on her hands and some other jewels lay sparkling on the table dresses less splendid than the dress she wore and half-packed trunks were scattered about. She had not quite finished dressing, for she had but one shoe on. The other was on the table, near her hand. Her veil was but half-arranged. Her watch and chain were not put on and some lace for her bosom lay with those trinkets and with her handkerchief and gloves and some flowers and a prayer book all confusedly heaped about the looking glass. It was not in the first few moments that I saw all these things, though I saw more of them in the first moments than might be supposed. But I saw that everything within my view which ought to be white, had been white long ago and had lost its luster and was faded and yellow. I saw that the bride within the bridal dress had withered like the dress and like the flowers and had no brightness left but the brightness of her sunken eyes. I saw that the dress had been put upon the rounded figure of a young woman and that the figure upon which it now hung loose had shrunk to skin and bone. Once I had been taken to see some ghastly waxwork at the fair representing I know not what impossible personage lying in state. Once I had been taken to one of our old marsh churches to see a skeleton in the ashes of a rich dress that had been dug out of a vault under the church pavement. Now, waxwork and skeletons seemed to have dark eyes that moved and looked at me. I should have cried out if I could. Who is that? said the lady at the table. Pip, ma'am. Pip. Mr. Pumblechook's boy, ma'am. Come uh, to play. Come nearer. Let me look at you. Come close. It was when I stood before her, avoiding her eyes, that I took note of the surrounding objects in detail and saw that her watch had stopped at twenty minutes to nine and that a clock in the room had stopped at twenty minutes to nine. Look at me, said Miss Havisham. You are not afraid of a woman who has never seen the sun since you were born? I regret to state 
that I was not afraid of telling the enormous lie comprehended in the answer. No. Do you know what I touch here? She said, laying her hands one upon the other on her left side. Yes, ma'am. It made me think of the young man. What do I touch? Your heart. Broken. She uttered the word with an eager look and with strong emphasis and with a weird smile that had kind of a boast in it. Afterwards, she kept her hands there for a little while and slowly took them away as if they were heavy. I am tired, said Miss Havisham. I want diversion. And I have done with men and women. Play. I think it will be conceded by my most disputatious reader that she could hardly have directed an unfortunate boy to do anything in the wide world more difficult to be done under the circumstances. I sometimes have sick fancies, she went on, and I have a sick fancy that I want to see some play. There, there. With an impatient movement of the fingers of her right hand, play, play. For a moment, with the fear of my sisters working me before my eyes, I had a desperate idea of starting round the room in the assumed character of Mr. Pumblechook's chase cart. But I felt myself so unequal to the performance that I gave it up and stood looking at Miss Havisham in what I supposed she took for a dogged manner. Inasmuch as she said, when we had taken a good look at each other. Are you sullen and obstinate? No, ma'am. I am very sorry for you and very sorry I can't play just now. If you complain of me, I shall get into trouble with my sister. So I would do it if I could. But it's so new here and so strange and so fine and melancholy. I stopped, fearing I might say too much, or had already said it, and we took another look at each other. Before she spoke again, she turned her eyes from me and looked at the dress she wore, and at the dressing table, and finally at herself in the looking glass. So new to him, she muttered. So old to me. So strange to him. So familiar to me.
so melancholy to both of us. Call Estella. And she was still looking at the reflection of herself. I thought she was still talking to herself and kept quiet. Call Estella, she repeated, flashing a look at me. You can do that. Call Estella at the door. To stand in the dark in a mysterious passage of an unknown house, bawling Estella to a scornful young lady, neither visible nor responsive, and feeling it a dreadful liberty so to roar out her name was almost as bad as playing to order. But she answered at last, and her light came along the dark passage like a star. Miss Havisham beckoned her to come close and took up a jewel from the table and tried its effect upon her fair young bosom and against her pretty brown hair. Your own, one day, my dear, and you will use it well. Let me see you play cards with this boy. With this boy? Why, he is a common laboring boy. I thought I overheard Miss Havisham's answer, only it seemed so unlikely. Well, you can break his heart. What do you play, boy? Asked Estella of myself with the greatest disdain. Nothing but beggar my neighbor, miss. Beggar him, said Miss Havisham to Estella. So we sat down to cards. It was then I began to understand that everything in the room had stopped like the watch and the clock a long time ago. I noticed that Miss Havisham put down the jewel exactly on the spot from which she had taken it up. As Estella dealt the cards, I glanced at the dressing table again and saw that the shoe upon it, once white, now yellow, had never been worn. I glanced down at the foot from which the shoe was absent and saw that the silk stocking on it, once white, now yellow, had been trodden ragged. Without this arrest of everything, the standing still of all the pale, decayed objects, not even the withered bridal dress on the collapsed form could have looked so like grave clothes, or the long veil so like a shroud. So she sat, corpse-like, as we played at cards, the frillings and trimmings on her bridal dress looking like earthy paper. I knew nothing then of the discoveries that are occasionally made of bodies buried in ancient times, which fall to powder in the moment of being distinctly seen. But I have often thought since that she must have looked 
as if the admission of the natural light of day would have struck her to dust. He calls the knaves jacks, this boy, said Estella, with disdain, before our first game was out. And what coarse hands he has, and what thick boots. I had never thought of being ashamed of my hands before, but I began to consider them a very indifferent pair. Her contempt for me was so strong that it became infectious, and I caught it. She won the game, and I dealt. I misdealt, as was only natural when I knew she was lying in wait for me to do wrong, and she denounced me for a stupid, clumsy, laboring boy. You say nothing of her, remarked Miss Havisham to me, and she looked on. She says many hard things of you, but you say nothing of her. What do you think of her? I I, I don't like to say, I stammered. Tell me in my ear, said Miss Havisham, bending down. I think she is very proud, I replied in a whisper. I think she is very proud, I replied in a whisper. Anything else? I think she's very pretty. Anything else? I think she's very insulting. She was looking at me then with a look of supreme aversion. Anything else? I think I should like to go home. And never see her again, though she is so pretty? I am not sure that I shouldn't like to see her again, but I should like to go home now. You shall go soon, said Miss Havisham, aloud. Play the games out. Saving for the one weird smile at first... I should have felt almost sure that Miss Havisham's face could not smile. It had dropped into a watchful and brooding expression, most likely when all the things about her had become transfixed. And it looked as if nothing could ever lift it up again. Her chest had dropped so that she stooped, and her voice had dropped so that she spoke low and with a dead lull upon her. She had the appearance of having dropped body and soul within and without under the weight of a crushing blow. I played the game to an end with Estella and she beggared me. She threw the cards down on the table when she had won them all as if she despised them for having been one of me. When shall I have you here again? said Miss Havisham. Let me think. I was beginning to remind her 
that today was Wednesday when she checked me with her former impatient movement of the fingers of her right hand. There, there. I know nothing of days of the week. I know nothing of weeks of the year. Come again after six days. You hear? Yes, ma'am. Estella, take him down. Let him have something to eat. And let him roam and look about him while he eats. Go, Pip. I followed the candle down as I had followed the candle up. And she stood it in the place where we had found it until she opened the side entrance I had fancied, without thinking about it, that it must necessarily be nighttime. The rush of the daylight quite confounded me and made me feel as if I had been in the candlelight of this strange room many hours. You are to wait here, you boy, said Estella, and disappeared and closed the door. I took the opportunity of being alone in the courtyard to look at my coarse hands and my common boots. My opinion of those accessories was not favorable. They had never troubled me before, but they troubled me now as vulgar appendages. I determined to ask Joe why he had ever taught me to call those picture cards jacks, which ought to be called knaves. I wish Joe had been rather more genteely brought up, and then I should have been so too. She came back, and with some bread and meat, and a little mug of beer, she put the mug down on the stones of the yard, and gave me the bread and meat without looking at me as insolently as if I were a dog in disgrace. I was so humiliated, hurt, spurned, offended, angry, sorry. I cannot hit upon the right name for the smart. God knows what its name was, that tears started to my eyes. The moment they sprang there, the girl looked at me with a quick delight in having been the cause of them. This gave me power to keep them back and to look at her. So she gave a contemptuous toss, but with a sense, I thought, of having made too sure that I was so wounded and left me. But when she was gone, I looked about me for a place to hide my face in and got behind one of the gates in the brewery lane and leaned my sleeve against the wall there and leaned my forehead on it and cried. As I cried, I kicked the wall and took a hard twist at my hair so bitter were my feelings, and so sharp was the smart without a name that needed counting.